which is a class on the myths about William Randolph Hearst, yellow journalism, and the lead-up to the Spanish-American War at the end of the 19th century. He debunks the tale that William Randolph Hearst telegrammed one of his correspondents on assignment in Cuba, quote, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war, end quote. His class is about 50 minutes. Good morning, welcome. Today we're going to talk about one of the most tenacious media myths in American journalism. It has to do, it revolves around the supposed vow of William Randolph Hearst to furnish the war with Spain at the end of the 19th century. This has become, over the years, an all-purpose media anecdote, useful in describing any number of media sins and shortcomings, including the scourge of fake news, including the scourge of fake news. So what are we talking about here? What are media myths? These are prominent stories about and or by the news media that are widely known and often retold, but which, under scrutiny, under examination, dissolve as apocryphal or wildly exaggerated. Media myths. And in a way, media myths are cousins to fake news. They can be thought of cases of fake news that have masqueraded as accurate for many years. Media myths. And and also they can be thought of as sort of the junk food of journalism. The junk food of journalism. Appealing Alluring, delicious perhaps, but not terribly wholesome and not terribly healthy. The junk food of journalism. Some of the features of media myths, these invariably are pithy tales. Succinct, short, to the point. They're almost always simplistic. Almost always simplistic. And, of course, they are media-centric. They revolve around media, media actors, journalists. They're easily remembered, easily retold. They're almost too good not to be true. These are some of the defining characteristics, some of the defining features of media myths. They almost always place journalists at the center of the action, at the center of important events, and do so in a decisive way for good or evil. For good or evil. And this anecdote that we're discussing today, this media myth that we'll be deconstructing, is often cited as evidence that William Randolph Hearst, a young newspaper publisher in New York City, fomented or brought about the Spanish-American War. It is, as I say, a tenacious, often invoked media myth. What are some examples of other media myths? This, of course, the Furnish the War anecdote, is hardly the only media myth out there. One of the most tenacious and popular is the notion that Woodward and Bernstein, two young reporters for the Washington Post, through their dogged reporting, brought down the corrupt presidency of Richard Nixon in 1974. Another well-known media myth is the notion that Walter Cronkite, in an on-air assessment of the war in Vietnam, declared the United States military to be mired in stalemate in February 1968, mired in stalemate. An assessment that supposedly swung public opinion in the United States against the war. Another example of a media myth revolves around the famous photograph of the napalm girl taken in Vietnam, what then was South Vietnam, by an Associated Press photographer named Nick Ut in June of 1972. The image showed the effects on civilians, particularly young children, of an errant napalm bombing on their village in what was then South Vietnam. 
The photograph supposedly was so powerful and so vivid that it helped hasten an end to the Vietnam War. And of course, the media myth today, the media myth du jour, is that surrounding William Randolph Hearst's purported vow to furnish the war with Spain. Now, this is an important anecdote. This is an important media myth to address and debunk because if this tale is true, if this is accurate, it suggests and point to, points to powerful effects by the news media, so powerful that they can bring about a war that the country otherwise wouldn't have fought. That is the implication here of this tale, of this anecdote, of this claim, this purported vow to furnish the war. The war with Spain did take place over about four months in 1898, beginning in April, ending in August. It was a brief but decisive conflict that ushered the United States onto the world stage. It confirmed the United States as an international power. The United States defeated Spanish forces in the Philippines and in the Caribbean. The effect of the war was to oust Spain from Cuba and its other Caribbean possessions and to leave the United States a colonial power, ruling far away lands such as the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam. The United States became a colonial power after the Spanish-American War. This was a decisive conflict for the country. This anecdote about furnish the war with Spain, first purported vow, pops up often, pops up often. Just earlier this month, Fox News, in an article about fake news, declared the granddaddy of dishonest journalists, William Randolph Hearst, once famously wrote to an illustrator, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. The History News Network a few months ago invoked this anecdote as if it were true. So too did the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. As we read for today, CNN recently invoked this tale. And over the years... The Washington Post, Politico, Forbes are among the publications that have used and invoked this anecdote, again, in a credulous fashion, as if it were true. Famous authors, James Fallows, Garrison Keillor, are among those who have also invoked this anecdote. So before we get into the deconstruction of this media myth... It's important to understand who's whom here. Who are the actors? Who are the principal players? Who are the individuals who really mattered in this, in this making of a media myth? And we'll start with William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst, at the time, was a 32-year-old newspaper publisher in New York City. He had come to New York in 1895 after a successful stint in San Francisco where he ran the San Francisco Examiner. Hearst was the son of a wealthy California miner, a guy who had struck it rich in the silver mines out west. Hearst was well-to-do, privileged, we would say today, and came to New York to run to acquire and run the New York Journal, then a more abound newspaper. And under Hearst's control, the newspaper took off. It became one of the most popular daily newspapers in New York City. Hearst's plan was to begin or expand his emergent media empire. He realized that he had no chance of establishing himself as a media baron unless he was able to be successful in New York City. Success in New York signaled success elsewhere for Hearst. And by the 1930s, William Randolph Hearst is a big-time newspaper baron, big-time media baron, with newspapers across the country, as well as radio stations 
and interests in film production companies. Hearst's start into the big time came in New York at the end of the 19th century. While in New York, he developed what came to be called yellow journalism. Yellow journalism. Often, yellow journalism is characterized, especially these days, as synonymous with sensational treatment of the news. As it was practiced in the late 19th century, yellow journalism was far more than the sensational treatment of the news. It was a distinct genre characterized by a number of distinctive features, including large headlines. Sometimes they would stretch across the page, the front page. Imaginative use of graphics was another characteristic feature of yellow journalism as it was practiced in New York and elsewhere in the late 19th century. Imaginative use of illustrations was another feature of this genre. At the time, most newspapers were very dull, very boring. Their layouts were very gray, did not make use of big headlines, did not make use of graphic images or later photographs. Yellow journalism was also characterized by a tireless self-promotion, indicated by the use of the newspaper's name prominently in the newspaper, particularly on a front page. This is a copy of the New York Journal from October 1897, in which the newspaper is announcing the successful jailbreak in Havana of a 19-year-old political prisoner named Evangelina Cisneros. The story has been largely lost in American journalism history to this day, but it was a big deal event back then because Hearst and his New York Journal helped to organize the jailbreak of Evangelina Cisneros, helped to break this political prisoner out of jail in Havana and smuggle her aboard a passenger steamer dressed as a boy, which, and the steamer arrived in New York City where she was received in a tumultuous reception organized by Hearst and his newspaper. The case of Evangelina Cisneros was a big-time example of the activism of William Randolph Hearst and his newspapers. And again, it's, this front page characterizes some of the features, some of the defining features of yellow journalism. Big, bold display, photographs, self-promotion, a tendency toward activism. In fact, Hearst called his journalism the journalism of action, thinking it had more of a responsibility than just reporting and commenting on the news. No, he said that journalism had a role, had an important function in stepping in and taking a role, an active role, to right the wrongs of society, the journalism of action. Also in the lineup of who was whom is Frederick Remington, a well-known artist of the American West, a painter, sculptor, sketch artist. He sometimes did newspaper work, newspaper illustrations, but he didn't think the reproduction quality in newspapers of the time in the late 19th century was all that good. It was all that good. Also in the lineup of who was whom around this media myth is Richard Harding Davis. Richard Harding Davis. He's a conceited but well-known writer and playwright who becomes the most famous correspondent in the Spanish-American War in 1898, a year or so after this myth took hold. He was a writer, and one of his first books was titled Soldiers of Fortune. Still in print. You can still get it through Amazon. It's a book of sort of a romance novel in which he sort of depicted himself as a central character, Richard Harding Davis. He was the son of a newspaper editor, and his mother was a writer. Rebecca Harding Davis was her name. Remington and Davis were assigned by Hearst to go to Cuba in early 1897. 
And they were there to cover the rebellion on Cuba against Spanish colonial rule. That was their assignment. Hearst, as he was wont to do, paid generously for the talent. He paid Richard Harding Davis $3,000 for one month's work. In 1897 money, that was a lot. Today it's worth about $90,000. $90,000 for a month's work. Hearst pays generously for top-line talent. Also in the lineup of the who was whom around this myth is James Creelman. James Creelman, Canadian-born, cigar-chomping admirer of, of William Randolph Hearst, he was the first to mention this anecdote, the first to mention the purported exchange of telegrams between Hearst and Remington, the first to mention, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. He did so in a book of reminiscences, a memoir that he brought out in 1901. Here's a passage from the book titled, On the Great Highway. And it's an anecdote he doesn't make a big deal about. He just mentions it in passing as a way to pay tribute to, as a way to praise, to sing the praises of Hearst's activist journalism, of Hearst's yellow journalism. So this is the passage. Creelman writes that Remington was instructed to remain in Cuba until the war began. But after a short while, he sent Hearst a cable saying, everything is quiet, there is no trouble here, there will be no war, I wish to return. In reply, according to Creelman, Hearst cables telegraphs Remington, please remain. You furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. Creelman goes on to write that the proprietor of the journal, i.e. Hearst, was as good as his word and brought about the war. Interestingly, Creelman offers no documentation for this anecdote. His book has no footnotes, has no citations. He does not explain then or ever after that how he learned about this anecdote, how he learned about this purported exchange between Hearst and Remington. This is important because Creelman at the time had a reputation for being a notoriously unreliable journalist. He claimed in 1894 that he witnessed a massacre of Chinese civilians by Japanese forces, an episode that was later investigated by the U.S. State Department and found to be a gross exaggeration, a gross exaggeration. During the Spanish-American War in 1898, toward the end of the war, Creelman claimed that he led a climactic charge of U.S. forces, that he was at the head of the charge of U.S. forces against a Spanish position near Santiago de Cuba, the second largest city in Cuba. This was a climactic, decisive charge, and he claimed he was the guy leading the way, an account that nobody really embraced, but nonetheless is emblematic of his tendency to exaggerate his embrace of hyperbole. He was pompous, this guy, James Creelman. One of his specialties was interviewing prominent people, the Pope, heads of state, European royalty. And often in these interviews, his write-ups of the interviews, they were not Q&A, but it was, a, it was a long, lengthy account of the interview in which Creelman would talk more about himself than about the subjects of his interview. In 1897, January 1897, when this exchange between Remington and Hearst would have taken place, Creelman is not with Remington. He is not with Hearst in New York City. Creelman is in Spain. He's in Madrid on assignment for the New York Journal. That tells us that he could not have learned about this purported exchange of telegrams firsthand that he only knew about it secondhand, or that he made it up, that he exaggerated this account. 
And it really is ironic that one of American journalism's best-known anecdotes, one of American journalism's most repeated tales, is based on and owes its existence to the unsubstantiated ruminations of an unreliable journalist, James Creelman. As I say, if this exchange between Hearst and Remington took place, it would have taken place in January of 1897, which was the only time that Remington was on Cuba before the Spanish-American War, which began in April 1898. At the time, at the time that Remington and Richard Harding Davis went to Cuba, there was an island-wide rebellion going on against Spanish colonial rule. This was an armed struggle that had begun in 1895, so by the time they got there, it was two years old. It was two years old. This rebellion was the precursor to the Spanish-American War of 1898. It was the precursor to the United States' entry into the conflict in Cuba, a conflict that had been raging since 1895. And that rebellion, the one that began in 1895, was the latest in a succession of uprisings by Cubans against Spanish colonial rule. Cuba was an important possession of Spain, had been for centuries. And Spanish response was vigorous and expensive. Spain sent 200,000 troops to the island to try to quell this rebellion. Spain also imposed rigorous censorship of all telegraphic traffic to and from Cuba. And it also instituted what turned out to be a very cruel policy called reconcentration. Reconcentration. Reconcentration led to a humanitarian disaster on Cuba by 1897 and early 1898. Reconcentration was an attempt by the Spanish authorities to deprive the Cuban rebels of support from the countryside, of support from the Cuban population. Under reconcentration, old men, women, and children were herded by the Spanish into garrison towns, into fortified centers on Cuba to deprive them of support, to keep them from supporting the Cuban rebels. In these garrison towns, these Cuban noncombatants suffered immensely, suffered immensely. Starvation, disease ran rampant. Thousands of Cuban noncombatants died because of this policy. And by 1898, early 1898, Cuba was the scene of a full-blown humanitarian disaster. So it was against this backdrop, born Cuba, that Davis and Remington together arrive in Havana, and they proceed immediately to try to get the lay of the land. One of their first meetings was with the butcher. The butcher. Who, you may ask, was the butcher? He was General Variano Weiler. He was the Spanish commander, military commander on Cuba at the time. He was the one who instituted and enforced the policy of reconcentration of removing Cuban noncombatants to garrison towns where they suffered immensely. General Weiler was known in the U.S. news media, in the U.S. newspapers, as the butcher. As the butcher. Butcher Weiler. The original plan of Davis and Remington was to cross Spanish lines and to hook up with the Cuban insurgents, the Cuban rebels, That was the objective, the prime objective of their assignment to Cuba. To cross Spanish lines, meet up with the Cuban insurgents. It's a plan that fell through. A plan that had really no hope of going anywhere. 
So they traveled around a bit in northern Cuba, from Havana to Matanzas. And after six days, they split ways. They part ways. Remington's a big guy. He suffers in the tropics. He didn't have a good time there. Davis is a tough guy to work with anyway. He doesn't like working in pairs, as he says. They split ways. They part ways after six days on on the island. Davis remains. Remington makes arrangements to return home, to go back to the States, go back to New York, on board the passenger steamer, the Seneca. And upon his return home, the journal begins prominent, prominent publication of Remington's sketches, Remington's sketches of the Cuban conflict. And they praise these sketches in headlines, saying they are the work of a gifted artist, Frederick Remington. So before debunking, before getting into the details of the debunking of this anecdote, of this media myth, let's recap real quickly. There's a rebellion going on in Cuba. Remington is there just six days. The first account of the exchange between, the supposed exchange between Hearst and Remington comes more than four years later, in 1901. In Creelman's book, which contains no documentation about how he learned about it, the source of this, of this purported exchange. And Creelman is the lone person to come up with this originally. This tale, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war, lives on despite a nearly complete absence of supporting documentation, as is mentioned in our core text this semester. A nearly complete absence of supporting documentation. So, to the debunking. Hearst denied that there was ever such an exchange, that he sent such a message to Remington. Remington himself apparently never spoke about it, never spoke publicly about this. And the telegrams themselves, the artifacts that are central to this whole story, have never turned up. The artifacts have never turned up. But there are other factors. Another factor is that it's illogical. This whole tale is illogical on its face because why would Hearst send Remington and Davis, why would he have sent a telegram to Remington vowing to furnish the war if war, the rebellion in Cuba, was the very reason he sent them, Remington and Davis, to Cuba in the first place? It's illogical. Given the context of what's going on in Cuba at the time, Hearst's vow to furnish the war makes no sense. It's illogical. It's illogical. Also, this tale does not account for the censors. Remember, one of the reactions of Spain was to impose rigid censorship on all incoming and outgoing telegraphic traffic to Cuba. Spain is running the show in Cuba, and they are controlling all incoming and outgoing telegraphic traffic. Why would Spanish censors have let such an incendiary message flow freely between Hearst and Remington? There's just no, no logic to this either. They certainly, the censors certainly would have intercepted this message had it been sent. They would have intercepted it and called attention to it as an example of Yankee meddling in Spanish-Cuban affairs. They certainly would have done this. They certainly would have not allowed this message from Hearst to Remington to flow freely, as Creelman's account implies. Nor does this tale account for William Randolph Hearst and his likely reaction. He's a young, wealthy newspaper publisher. According to Creelman, Hearst's message was to, to 
to Remington was, please remain. You furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. But Remington does not remain in Cuba. He returns after six days. And then Hearst's newspaper gives Remington's sketches big-time treatment, prominent display, prominent display in Hearst's New York Journal. It seems unlikely that Hearst would have tolerated this kind of insubordination, that he would have tolerated, that he would have put up with what was a clear disregard of his instructions to remain in Cuba. The tale is also contradicted by the writings of Davis and Remington, who in the weeks and months afterwards described scenes of violence and upheaval on Cuba. Davis, in one of his letters home, states quite clearly, there is war here. Make no mistake. There is war here. And remember, according to Creelman, Remington's telegram to her said everything is quiet in Cuba. But his own contemporaneous work and that of his travel companion, Richard Harding Davis, contradict that kind of assertion. Further contradicting this tale are the letters that that Richard Harding Davis sent home. He was very close to his mother. He kept in touch with his family by mail very often. His letters are kept in an archive at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville. His letters to his family about this time offer no support for Creelman's account about why Remington left, that everything was quiet. None of his letters, none of Davis's letters home suggest that Remington wanted to leave on the pretext that everything was quiet in Cuba. He gave somewhat related versions, three somewhat related versions as to why Remington went home. One of those versions was that Remington had obtained all the material he needed for his sketches and decided to go. That was contained, that message, the first bullet point, that message was contained in a letter that Davis wrote and Remington carried with him back to the States. So Remington presumably would have had an opportunity to have read the letter. Another version, related version, that Davis wrote was that Remington went home at Davis's request. That he didn't like working in pairs, that Remington was holding him up all the time. He describes Remington as a big blundering bear, asked him to go, and said he was happy that Remington did leave. A third and somewhat related version that that Davis included in his letters to his family was that Remington got scared. He became frightened by the prospect of having to cross Spanish military lines into Cuban-held territory and backed out. And backed out. The second and third versions, if you will, were contained in private letters that Davis sent to his family. In any case, these letters offer powerful and contemporaneous challenges to Creelman's account that everything was quiet and that Remington went back home because there would be no war. Of these elements in the debunking, which do you find most persuasive. Most persuasive and why? That Hearst denied having sent this message and Remington never spoke about it, apparently. That the telegrams themselves, the artifacts, have never surfaced. That had they been sent, censors, Spanish censors, would have intercepted and called attention to this case of clear Yankee meddling. 
The reality that a message claiming a vow, claiming to furnish the war, would have been illogical on its face, given the context in Cuba at the time, that a war was going on. A war was the very reason Hearst is sending Davis and Remington to Cuba. Or the element of the debunking that rests in Davis's letters. Davis's letters contradict the reasons Creelman gave for Remington's departure. Of those elements, which do you find most persuasive, and why? Go. not listen to him and I think Hearst is known for being kind of a volatile guy and he wouldn't have celebrated his artist his artistry if he had contradicted him in that way and come back very good point what do you think of the argument though that Hearst just kind of swallowed that and because he had images from wartime Cuba that no other newspaper had so therefore he was going to run it prominently even if Remington had been subordinate. I don't know. I think that there would have been other ways that we found out that he was angry besides just the pictures. So, like, he could have posted the pictures and then also kind of, like, said something sly about Remington. Very good. Yeah. Reprimanded him in some other ways, but using the the photographs or the the images, the sketches, really, from, from Cuba. Good point, Kobe. Other arguments that you find to be particularly persuasive in this lineup or some of the other points that were mentioned. Go ahead. Um, so I think that the one who Davis is contradicting would probably be the most persuasive um, just because the rest of those reasons listed you can kind of mess around with and find a counter argument to like maybe the telegrams were destroyed that's why they didn't right. surface uh, but these letters are kept and they're preserved, and why would he be writing letters of lies to his family? Right, how would he have known about this anecdote? Because it didn't become right. sort of popular or didn't hit the public domain until 1901, which is years after he's writing. So these are contemporaneous, contemporaneous letters, it's contemporaneous evidence. Good point, Alyssa. Other thoughts as to which would be the most persuasive element of the debunking of the elements that we've discussed here. Emily. I would just say it's it's so interesting. Um, I would agree that that's probably the strongest evidence. um, Davis' letters? Yes. Uh um, But also it's just so interesting that um, this, like, myth and quote itself in these telegrams, that the fact that they've never been seen is so interesting because it is such commonplace even today in America and it's just so interesting how um, the roots or like background of where these things came from are often like I guess not even there very good it is intriguing it really is intriguing how this tale took hold how this myth became a media myth and it's, it's also intriguing that the, the anecdote about furnish the war stirred almost no attention, received almost no public attention or reaction when Creelman's book came out in 1901. There may be a few passages, a few references to it in, in newspaper reviews, but by and large, it generates no comment. There was a brief flurry of commentary when Creelman published a magazine article that included this anecdote in 1906, and a British publication picked up on it and said, geez, in the United States, there's, you know, they're going crazy, and repeated the anecdote then. And that's when Hearst denied it, called it frankly false and clotted nonsense. And then the, the anecdote goes dormant. 
It goes dormant for 30 years. And is resurrected in 1936. What might have happened in 1936? Any wild guesses? Lizzie. more power comes into power and that's when the beginnings of World War II start up. Also FDR is president so there's a lot of social and political change, a lot of economic change going on at the time so just in general a very kind of uh, troubled, turbulent political and social climate. Well said. Troubled, turbulent time. The United States is still in the throes of the Great Depression, the economic downturn that had begun six years earlier, seven years earlier. And it's a presidential election year, 1936. Franklin Roosevelt is running for re-election, second term. And Hearst, who is a lifelong Democrat, as was Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, Hearst wanted to be president. He was using his platform, his media holdings, in the early 20th century to become a viable candidate for president. He sought the Democratic nomination pretty openly in 1904, lost, didn't stand as the Democratic standard bearer that year, but nonetheless it was emblematic of his ambitions to become president. A lifelong Democrat. He breaks with Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 over Roosevelt's New Deal policies to re-stimulate the American economy, to get the country back on its feet after the Depression. Hearst breaks with Roosevelt supports a Republican named Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas, for the presidency. And this was an ugly break, an ugly break. Hearst's newspapers, in effect, call Roosevelt an agent of Moscow because of his policies, because of his New Deal. Roosevelt's supporters punish Hearst for his apostasy. And one way they did this was to revive Furnish the War, to dust off this old-time anecdote that had first appeared in Creelman's book in 1901 and invoke it as a way to damage Hearst and his reputation, to sully his reputation. And it appears in a number of books and articles at that time, in the mid-1930s. It appears notably in this truculent, polemical, this biography of Hearst called Imperial Hearst. Thin, but hostile to Hearst. And this is one of the places where Furnish the War is resurrected, revived, and brought back into the public domain. What sealed this anecdote, what firmly planted it into the popular consciousness, was a 1941 motion picture loosely based on the times and life of William Randolph Hearst. This anecdote was sealed by a movie. That film, any guesses? Kobe. Citizen Kane. That movie, Citizen Kane, which starred and was directed by a 26-year-old prodigy named Orson Welles, who played the Hearst-like character, Charles Foster Kane. Charles Foster Kane. Clearly was a Hearstian character, this guy. This movie was no documentary. It wasn't intended to be but is recognized as among the best motion pictures ever made. The American Film Institute occasionally has polls or surveys that place Citizen Kane at or near the top of the best motion pictures of all time. And Kane, Citizen Kane, included an early scene in which Charles Foster Kane mimics this exchange of telegrams. It's clearly 
it's clearly based on you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. And if technology doesn't fail us, let's take a look at that clip. I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. Can you Payne. prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just go. How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's <laughs> fine, Mr. Kane. Yes, I rather like myself. So, right away. I right came away. to see you yes, about this campaign of yours. scene clearly inspired by you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. So what do we conclude? What are we to conclude about this tale, about this anecdote, about this purported vow to furnish the war? It is almost certainly apocryphal. It is entirely without documentation. This is an anecdote that lives on, but it deserves relegation to the fake news museum of historical inaccuracy. Under scrutiny, this tale of hubris and of media power dissolves which is the fate of most media myths when they're scrutinized, when they're looked at in detail and in context with other sources of information examined. And as this tale of Furnish the War dissolves, with it goes evidence that yellow journalism brought about the war with Spain. That yellow journalism fomented the Spanish-American War. That war was not caused by newspapers. It was not caused by William Randolph Hearst. It was not brought about by yellow journalism. This conflict was the result, as conflicts tend to be, of an impasse between the United States and Spain about Spain's harsh colonial rule of Cuba 90 miles from the U.S. mainland. And in particular, Spain's inability to put down this insurrection, this rebellion that had given rise to Spanish policies that created a humanitarian disaster on Cuba. the humanitarian disaster that caused, that was, resulted from Spain's reconcentration policy. The yellow press of William Randolph Hearst did not cause those policy differences between the United States and Spain. The New York Journal did not create the humanitarian crisis of reconcentration. Spain did. So why does this matter? Why does it matter now, 120 plus years later, to debunk this media myth? Why not just let it live on as an amusing tale of hubris and overweening power? Why does it matter? Thoughts? Comments? Observations as to why it matters to debunk this tale? 
you furnished the pictures and I'll furnish the war was true, it would seem to be emblematic of American news media in general. Um, and the fact that it sort of took place uh, while the American news media was still forming an identity uh, seems pretty important, I guess. So we need to debunk it. Good point. I would agree. And I would take your point a little further and say that this demonstrates, this, this anecdote embraces a sense of ominous power by the news media, a sense of ominous power that under the right conditions, they can bring about a war the country otherwise would not engage in, that they can act so disreputably as to whip up public sentiment to plunge the country into a war as Hearst supposedly did with the Spanish-American War in 1898. So that's an important reason why it is important to address and debunk this tale, because it is used as Exhibit A in the lineup of evidence, thin evidence, that Hearst brought about the war with Spain. I would argue that the notion that the media have this kind of power to plunge the country into war is nonsense. Is nonsense. I'll leave you with three straightforward reasons why it also matters. Understanding media power and media influence that matters. Debunking this tale gives us a better understanding of how the media operate or how they do not operate. Secondly, setting straight the historical record matters. If we are to have a coherent understanding of ourselves and our past, that record, the historical record, ought to be accurate, ought to be truthful, ought not to be plagued by media myths. And for that reason, I would argue media myths and the debunking thereof matter quite a lot. Folks, that's it for now. I look forward to seeing you again soon when we take up and debunk additional media-driven myths. Thanks very much. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.